If you've ever ridden the wave of inner criticism because things just didn't go perfectly right, then you're going to want to listen to this conversation. This chat and Catherine's book were the balm to my striving, angsty soul. (laughs) I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of our world. Telling a perfectionist to do less, to worry less and to just lower their expectations, well, it just doesn't work. Catherine Morgan Scheffler not only knows this, but is calling us all to see the superpower in perfectionism and hone the energy that sits within perfectionism to live a joy-filled life. Catherine is a New York City-based psychotherapist, author and speaker. Formerly on-site at Google, she worked in a wide range of clinical settings and is the author of a brand new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, a path to peace and power. You can find out more and also see which are the five types of perfectionism you might have at perfectionistguide.com. In this conversation, we go deep. We talk about our birthright towards joy, talk about the difference between control and power and hint, control doesn't exist. We also talk about the tools to come back to what do you need and how do we ask for help. My advice to you, drop everything that you're doing, grab a cup of hot something and soak up the powerful words and the invitation that Catherine extends to us all. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, I'm excited to dive into the world of perfectionism and talk a little bit about your recent book. But before we do, tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah. So I am a psychotherapist and an author and a speaker. And I always knew I wanted to be a therapist. I think it's a somewhat strange job to identify as a child (laughs) that you want to be. I attribute that identification to two things. One, watching a lot of Oprah as a small kid. And two, I had this incredible moment of lucidity when I was really young. I was maybe 11-ish. I was in seventh grade. And um, we were learning about poetry and the difference between a haiku and long form poems and this and that. And I remember reading in my textbook, a poem about geese flying in a V formation. And the poet said about that formation, like if you look up in the sky and you see the geese flying in that way, I wouldn't want to put the geese in any other way. It's so beautiful. And I don't know what it was about reading that, but I something clicked for me and it was like a recognition of, oh, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I translated that in subsequent years to, I want to help people to feel that they don't want or need to be in any other place than where they are. Essentially feeling a sense of connection to themselves and presence in their life now. And I used that feeling and recognition to screen 
all the jobs and roles that I did of, is this helping people to feel connected and present? And that is a statement that I have always held since, you know, I can remember of my job is to connect and heal through language and presence. And being a therapist is one way to express that intention, but you know, so is writing a book that I hope could be connective for people. And, you know, so is going and talking in person. And there are a million different ways to express what you're trying to do when you have an intention. It doesn't necessarily matter to me the role that it plays out, but the role that it has mostly played out for me has been through therapy, being a therapist. So interesting that that sense of realization and um, almost being able to have that imagery of birds flying in formation as you start to look at a career and where you might want to go. Um, yeah, really, really fascinating. As you got into psychotherapy, what was it that you started to notice in your clinic that drove you to want to maybe explore perfectionism a little more? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I've worked, um, in a lot of different clinical settings, but ultimately marketed my practice to women and high achieving women. Um, I started my career in crisis work and that involves a lot of putting band-aids on gunshot wounds kind of work of securing housing, applying for, um, grants, you know, helping people connect to local food banks so that they can eat, you know, things like that. And that was important and good. And I liked that work and you could see an immediate impact in that work. And then I worked a lot in addiction and recovery spaces. And that was also sort of something immediate about that salve that you're offering and, and collaborating with your clients on creating, um, and had like long-term thing, you know, benefits. What I became really interested in is what happens when people get everything they say they wanted and are still unhappy. And how does that dissatisfaction present? And in the high achieving person, their suffering is mostly invisible because what I mean by high functioning and high achieving is that you can be very depressed on clinical scales and not have any outward disruption to your life. Your boss isn't going to call you in five days and say, where are you? No one's heard from you because you're still showing up. You're still performing well. You know, you're still doing all the things that you're supposed to do. And there is no difference externally from the way you're engaging with your world and your daily life um, than there would be if you were in this super joyous place internally. So I became really attracted and drawn to people who are adept at seeming put together whenever they want to be. It's very nuanced work. No one can hide their suffering better than the highly functioning person. And so, you know, it's a real challenge for me. And that naturally brought me to work with perfectionists. Feels and contradictory, so, right? It feels contradictory that, uh, as you say, someone might rate on a depression scale and yet 
functioning on the outside. They feel like they don't go together, but so interesting that, that that's where your work went. Yeah, it is something that I think a lot of therapists are well-versed in is the sense that just because you seem healthy doesn't mean that you are healthy. And a lot of people know how to seem healthy. And in many ways in this culture, we're taught to seem healthy and we're rewarded for seeming healthy, right? So in the same way that thinness and seeming, you know, to look a certain way, automatically carries a presumption of health, regardless of what's happening behind the scenes to generate, create, or maintain that thinness. Um, that happens on other levels too, you know, in terms of like, well, you don't look upset. You don't look sad. You're not dropping the ball anywhere. So things must be good. So your book is titled The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. I personally have a little bit of a bone to pick with you because I was excited to read this book, uh, knowing that it would be really helpful for the kinds of people that I get to work with. But this book kicked my ass personally oh. as well, um, which has been hard and awesome at the same time. That idea of losing control yeah. From the people that you've worked with, is that scary or liberating for perfectionists? You know, I think the idea of losing control is a universal fear for all human beings. And sometimes that fear is experienced more often than not or in a patterned way um, for perfectionists or for anybody who relies on a strategy of control to feel safe um, in basic ways. And it's very psychologically threatening to understand and appreciate what little control we have over so many parts of our lives. Um, but we don't have control over very much. Control is an illusion in lots of ways, but what we do have is power and anyone can have power. You don't need titles to grant you access to power. And so that's what the spine of the book is about, is about how to let go and, and lose control and how to hold on and recognize and celebrate your power. What's the difference between control and power. I love that there is something about letting it go, but still not letting go of the influence, the potential that sits in, in you because, um, yeah, let's sit with that question. What, what do you see as a difference between control and power? Yeah, it's a great question. So control is a cardboard cutout generic version of power and control is very focused on achieving a specific outcome. Whereas power is more focused on the intention of whatever you're doing. Um, so control is focused on achieving outcome. Power is focused on intention. And what I like to, um, offer is a definition of power, which is power is understanding the immutability of your worth, which means that if you're a powerful person, you understand that there's nothing that you can do or not do that's going to change the fact 
that you are worthy of all the love, joy, dignity, connection, and freedom that, that the most quote unquote accomplished best version of you is also entitled to that best version of you and you sitting here right now, listening to this show are equally worthy of those things. And you have been since the day you were born, joy, freedom, dignity, love, and connection are birthrights. You don't earn them. And so when you are in your power, you know that. And because you know that it creates a sense of safety and security within you. Like it doesn't, things don't feel so high stakes, you know, when you're like, oh, if this person doesn't ask me back out on a third date, that means that I'm not, you know, attractive or appealing to them or whatever it is. That's a place of control. So when you're in a place of control, you're operating from a state of fear. And when we are afraid, whether we know it or not, all of our decisions and thinking stems from taking a posture of defensiveness, you know? And so that comes across to others as desperation. Because if you don't get asked out on that date or you don't get the promotion or you don't lose the weight, then that means that what? You're not worthy of being joyful, that you're not worthy of being loved. These are like high stakes experiences. And when you attach your worth to them, like you are in a perpetual scramble to make sure that that happens and you are holding on tight and you are not letting go. And that begins to close off your world and create a very myopic experience for you in which it is pass, fail, hit, miss. There's no gray. When you're in your power, it's a totally different experience. You already certify your own worth and belonging. So you're not necessarily needing things to unfold. And of course, that's such an attractive quality. And it makes other people feel safe. And it makes other people feel assured and confident in you. And you don't make decisions based on fear. You make your decisions based on possibility and what you want instead of what you're afraid to lose, which are two different things. Yeah. That's hitting hard when you, I hear you say that there's something about that, um, that sense of being able to step into your power, to know that your birthrights are already certified. There's nothing else you can do. And yet there's, there can be these little tiny voices going, yeah, but you know, I've got to do this, this, and this. Why does telling a perfectionist just to do less, just to chill out, to not expect so much. Why does that not work? (laughs) Oh, it doesn't work because perfectionists experience their perfectionism in a very core way. So it's like thinking of yourself as a romantic or an activist. You know, you can't, or even an artist, right? You can't tell someone who's an artist, just care about art half the time. You can't tell someone who's a romantic, listen, it's great that you believe in love. Want want you to scale that back 25%, believe in love 75% of the time and you'll be all set. It's like, it's like this directive, which drove me nuts in all the self-help personal development spaces when people are trying to give advice to perfectionists and the, the subtext of the advice is just be less of who you are. And, um, 
just be a different person. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't work because people are who they are. And there's nothing wrong with being a perfectionist. You can be a perfectionist and still be not only healthy, but joyful. Some of the most joyful, greatest contributors to our society are perfectionists. You know, it's not perfectionism. That's anybody's problem. What the problem is, is using punishment instead of self-compassion to motivate you to get whatever the thing that your perfectionism is, is calling you to strive for. That's the problem is when you don't get that or when it's taking you longer than you think, um, that you respond to that delay or inevitably like, you know, ideals are not meant to be achieved. They're only meant to inspire. It's when you respond to that in a punitive way, that's what gets people into trouble. That's what hurts you, you know, perfectionist or not. If you use punishment as a strategy for growth, you are going to suffer interminably. Punishment is such a tough word when you hear it, and yet the the grains of it uh, for those listening who might go, "Hey, there's elements of perfectionism in what I do, um, so I have to work harder. I, I need to kind of strive harder. I need to kind of do things." And one of the lines you've got in your book, which I love, is that you don't earn your way to joy. Joy is a birthright. Which, but there's a as I read that, there was even a little voice that goes, yeah, but I reckon I could earn some more points. Like I reckon <laughs> I could, <laughs> that'd be yeah. fine for everyone else, but I think I could do more. Um, yeah. what, do you, what does punishment look like? And I love that sense of it, punishment versus self-compassion. What yeah. do you see and notice? What does punishment look like? So I really appreciate you bringing up that, experience that you have of recognizing that something's true and then trying to create a technicality around the truth. Totally. <laughs> right? Because I do that too. For me, it's different. <laughs> we all do that, right? It's like, oh yeah, that's true. But mm, I'm also going to just tweak this a little bit so that it it fits inside the way I'm currently thinking. And, you know, it brings me to a broader point before I dive into the punishment question, which is that perfectionism, mental health in general, our sense of identity, what we care about, the way we feel, the human experience itself is a very fluid, context-dependent thing. So there's no such thing in my view as being healthy, right? Healthiness is not a flag that you find, you know, and plant in the ground and then you're okay and you're good. And there's no such thing also as just being totally unhealthy. We have another way to think of it is like, no one's getting it right all the time, but no one's getting it wrong all the time either. So I frame perfectionism as a power in the book and as a really wonderful, beautiful, kaleidoscopic, potentially hellish nightmare thing that can be expressed constructively to your advantage, towards your healing, towards your full expression of self, and that can be expressed destructively, right? Can be your downfall, can be your Achilles heel, can be, you know, this black hole for you. Um, and so to 
get to your question, punishment usually doesn't look straight forward in the sense of like hurting yourself literally, right? Punishment is very subtle and subtlety is powerful in that the more plausible deniability there is and you saying like, this isn't a punishment, I'm just being disciplined. It's not, it's not punishment, I'm not withholding joy from myself because I don't think I deserve joy. I'm just, you know, work's got to get done. And it's like those subtle things that only you know, and that's the tricky thing, is that once you get to a certain level of functioning, nobody's coming. There's no cavalry that's going to be like, actually, this is punishment because you're doing it from this place of compensatory drive instead of excitement and curiosity. And so the definition of punishment that I use is punishment is when you do something Um, whether that's withholding something or doing something that creates more pain. So a punishment can look like you know that you need to just go home and take a hot bath. You made a a really big mistake. Let's say you you said something very foolish and impulsive in a meeting and there's no beautifying it. Like it was bad. (laughs) It was a mistake. Mm. And you feel like shit and you're And you're in that place where, whether you know it or not, you're either going to choose punishment or self-compassion. And you just want to take a bath so much, but you decide to not do that. And instead, to just go home and eat a bunch of shit food and sit in front of Netflix. And you're doing something that is going to make yourself feel worse, right? That's a punishment. Hmm. Punishments is about creating more pain. All a punishment does is lays pain on top of whatever's there. It's a very lazy strategy, if you can even call it a strategy. It's very different in market ways from discipline, personal accountability, rehabilitation, or allowing natural consequences to unfold. All those last four things I just said require some degree of thoughtfulness, retrospection, dialogue with yourself or other people about ways you could have made different choices. Punishment does not require any of that. Punishment is just laying pain on top of whatever's already there. And one thing that I try to really bring home in the book is that therapists are not in the business of making promises. We can't promise things will feel better or change. But I do promise my readers, and I promise anyone listening to this right now, that we are all in enough pain already. We do not need to create more pain for ourselves. Punishment doesn't work. Not only does it not work, it makes everything worse. Being able to see that difference between discipline or striving or doing better next time versus punishment is a, such a really powerful definition or distinction. Mm. Um, as you say, going home, sitting, eating crap food, watching Netflix, promising yourself that you'll get up and work an hour earlier tomorrow to kind of get things done. The, the, that subtle difference of being able to see what's hurting more versus what's actually going to allow me to 
improve next time or to mm-hmm. go back to that conversation that was a mistake and I did say something and what can I do differently? I, you know, really, that was, that's really powerful to kind of hear the difference between a distinction between punishment versus self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I would love to, I'm going to throw a couple of words at you and I'd love to kind of get your sense on how they fuel perfectionism um, and what we should do with some of these common languages that we have, particularly for striving women. The first of those mm-hmm. words is balance. Mm-hmm. Okay. What comes to mind when you hear that? <laughs> what doesn't come to mind? That word makes me feel <laughs> angry as the first reaction. Um, I want to revisit that distinction very quickly that mm. you just made, which is that Which is to say, I imagine people listening to this and being like, well, sometimes I do need to just sit in front of the TV and eat crap food. And is that always a punishment? And the answer is no, it's not. Sometimes punishment and restoration can look exactly the same on the outside. And so I just want to offer your listeners Mm. one litmus test to be able to tell, are you restoring yourself or are you numbing yourself out? Um, which is delaying any processing of what you're feeling and, and, um, probably leaning you towards the path of punishment. And when you restore yourself afterwards, you feel good. It feels better when you're punishing yourself or just numbing out, you know, numbing doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel nothing. So if you go home and and eat whatever you want to eat, you know, and, and watch, whatever you want to watch. And then the next day you're like, thank God I did that. I feel so much better. I really needed to just brain flush and just not think about the world for a minute. That's restoration, right? And that's Mm. the nuance that I'm talking about of perfectionists. It's like only you know, nobody else knows. So you really have to be the one to check in with yourself. No, nobody else could do it if they wanted to. Um, and so to, get to you, your question about balance. Balance is one of the words that I just heard pop up over and over and over and over again in my practice in the sense that really high achieving women who wanted a lot and were very ambitious would say, I just can't find balance. Some version of that statement. Mm. And can you help me with the subtext of like, something's wrong with me. Something's not clicking. I can't figure it out. It seems easier for other people. I just need, you know, the one thing, the hat trick, the silver bullet, the magic pill. Just what is that? Was essentially this question that was existing in an echo chamber of my private practice. And what I discovered is that balance in its original definition, its really curative definition is about energetic equilibrium, right? Of this idea of like yin and yang and a little bit of the good with a little bit of the bad and we balance out. Balance, the way it's used presently in commercial wellness is about balancing tasks and it has been reduced and stripped down to mean we're good at being busy. Good being good at being busy has nothing to do with actual health whatsoever. And so when we say, oh, she's so balanced, what you mean is she can do a million things and not drop the ball. Look, she can throw the party for her kids and she just got a promotion and she's really healthy and eats well. Look how balanced she is. Mm. 
when that's not what balance is. And so to me, balance does not exist. We're either operating over our energetic equilibrium or under. And perfectionists reliably prefer and choose to operate a little bit over our energetic equilibrium, which means we like to ride the overwhelm wave instead of being underwhelmed and doing less. That's a lot more scary for perfectionists to be in the space of that. The, um, I totally agree with you. If we can get rid of that word balance and even the amount of times I hear people say that that's my goal for the year. Like I just want to find more balance. It's like, well, yeah, it doesn't exist. The other word I've got for you is hot mess. What comes to mind? Right. Well, this comes in contrast to balance. Um, and I find that there is so much value in really being conscious about which words are popular and why, and what implicit messaging language carries. Language is so powerful. And the more I looked into the word perfectionist, which has no clinical definition, right? You can't be diagnosed Mm. as a perfectionist. Um, We are in the infancy of our research of this construct. And so a lot of definitions are floating around about what it means to be a perfectionist and what perfectionism is. And, you know, that's initially not helpful, but it is it is helpful in the end because it challenges you to say, well, let me see what I notice about when this word is used and what people mean when they say it. And first of all, um, a lot of women are given the directive to be less perfectionistic and don't be such Mm. a perfectionist is something that women hear much more often than, than men. And what I also noticed in advertising and marketing and self-help and personal development was that women are, were being given the directive to find balance more. Um, and I have examples of some advertising on my Instagram page at Catherine Morgan Schaffler about like, for example, I was in Soho. I live in New York, just walking around minding my own business, just not trying to have deep thoughts about anything. (laughs) And I passed by this billboard of this woman and she's holding a baby in one arm and a computer in another. And the advertisement was for a clothing company. And it just said very simply on the top, balance it. And I thought, God, imagine, and there was a women's clothing company. I thought, imagine a man in this ad. The ad Mm. doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And so language carries a regulatory function, meaning it regulates gender performance expectations in any culture, right? So in the same way that the word bossy for a long time flew under the radar as a way to regulate authoritative qualities in girls and women, right? So little girls who demonstrate any degree of authority are told, listen, don't be so bossy, don't be so sassy. Those words are not told to boys as much. And the implicit messaging there is being authoritative is not a feminine quality. So stop doing that. Mm. And the word hot mess is also a descriptor of femininity. When you think of someone who's a hot mess or whom you might describe as a hot mess, you think of a woman or a very effeminate person, right? And 
Hot mess means the implicit messaging is you're not doing your job as a woman, which is to appear balanced. Not balanced in a curative construct of finding your energetic equilibrium, which doesn't have a reliable presentation because you can be really balanced on the inside and a little bit all over the place on the outside or put together because, you know, we're all different people, but you need to appear balanced. And if you don't appear balanced, if you show up to the meeting and your hair is kind of messed up or your phone goes off five minutes later or this or that, and you're not doing a good job of pretending like you can balance all of these tasks and endless directives, then you're just a hot mess. Girl, you are a hot mess. So people say that all the time. Um, and it's a punishment for not seeming healthy, right? And so all of these words have an interplay going on. Perfectionist, don't be such a perfectionist, is telling ambitious, authoritative women you are doing too much. Stop, calm down, slow down, do less, be less. When you look at famous perfectionists like a Martha Stewart or a Marie Kondo, for example, you notice nobody's telling them to find more balance and nobody is looking at their perfectionism and saying, perfectionism is bad and unhealthy. People are loving it and syndicating their shows and buying more books and doing all the things. And that's because they are women expressing ambition and power in realms that are not a threat or competition to men. You know, Martha Stewart's company is about hosting social gatherings and paint palettes that pop and how to throw brunch in a pinch. And Marie Kondo's platform was centered around the idea of tidying up. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that these women are celebrated and exalted and, you know, their work is monetized heavily and shared when these are archetypal homemaker interests. That messaging is, this is how you behave. When you have other self-proclaimed perfectionists like Serena Williams or Anna Wintour, who maybe aren't as, Anna Wintour is not necessarily a warm and maternal leader, right? I mean, she probably is behind closed doors, but she presents herself in a way that's sometimes not perceived as warm enough. And so she's immediately cast as like a devil in Prada. The messaging there is like, you can be a woman and be a leader, I guess, since you're at a fashion magazine, but you better also be maternal, you know? And Serena Williams brings a lot of- And kind. And warm and kind and all that. And Serena Williams brings so much attention to herself, not just through her skills and- um, assertively challenging certain calls and, you know, all of the, these examples I put in the book, but just the way she dresses and her sense of being unapologetic about who she is. And it's very off-putting to a lot of people and, um, she's punished for it. All women encounter immediate punishment for, for being too much of anything that's not, what is acceptable for women to be ambitious about. So that was another observation I made in my work was that women were doing a lot of emotional and intellectual labor, figuring out how to make their ambition palatable and how to make their ambition acceptable and sort of be very ambitious without putting anyone off. 
Huge, huge. And I, I didn't even know that Martha Stewart was a um, stockbroker before she went into. So that was. She was a, a stockbroker on Wall Street. So surprising. To yeah. Me. Incredible. And it's like, so we don't talk about that. That's not what we're it's, told. Doesn't, it doesn't match her personal brand, right? No, no. It's so interesting. How do you suggest people navigate because there's that social punishment and I'll use that word because we've been been talking about punishment that social punishment of you're a hot mess you haven't got it together or this isn't how you show your power as an assertive woman um, Mm -hmm. versus that internal kind of punishment and so I guess what's coming to mind for me is whilst beating myself up um dragging myself through the coals, like piling on the pain internally is hard thing to do. I'd much rather jumpstart that than get the the societal punishment of Mm -hmm. being seen as a hot mess or not having it all together or having that that fear, even if it never happens, but the fear of it potentially happening because this goes against what I'm seeing, whether it's in advertising or what I'm hearing from other people. How can we navigate those that that societal kind of impact on perfectionism? Yeah. So I think navigating culture's impossible expectations for women involves externalizing them and saying, this is what culture wants. And not everything that culture wants is bad, right? But a lot of a lot of our cultural values, which are very well-worn and sanctioned, don't happen to be our personal values. And so being able to say that expectation is not coming from me internally and who I know myself to be and what I desire. And that's coming from there. And then just being able to create space between you and this other force at work in your psyche, which is our culture. Um, And then asking yourself this very important, difficult question, what do I want? What do I want? And trusting your answer, trusting that you can engage your answer as an impending reality instead of like some fantasy, right? So a lot of people don't ever ask themselves that question, and women in particular, because we're used to identifying ourselves through the roles we play in other people's lives. And it's like when oftentimes I'll ask someone, what do you want? And they'll answer from the perspective of like, what's best for their family? And I don't think you need to eradicate the awareness and desire to do what's best for your family from, you know, that answer, but there's multiple other answers. And one of them is like, but what do you want? Even if it's as simple as like, I want an orange soda right now, like anything that just serves you, right? Like, what do you want? And continuing to be in the cognitive habit of asking yourself that question and saying your answer out loud or writing it down. Take it out of your mind in some way. I don't know why, but I know this is true. There is so much power in saying I want and then whatever it is that you want out loud, even if you only say it to yourself, 
even if it's in a whisper, it doesn't matter. Speaking it out loud does something, some alchemy happens. I don't know. That's not my realm of understanding, but I do know that it is true. And same for writing. There's something so powerful about really animating our desires as human beings and particularly as women. It makes them feel more real, more possible. I'm not sure what it is. Something about hearing it, seeing it written down that you know, it's almost like we hear it for the first time, acknowledge mm-hmm. it, see it mm-hmm. for the first time, um, and it can can be true in that space. I think that's what do I want and writing that down. You talk a lot about the importance of language and nuances of language. There might be some people listening who go, that's all well and good, but I'm not a perfectionist because mm-hmm. I don't have my house together and I'm really a messy person. In the book, you talk about five different types of perfectionists. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those five types? I would love to. So the first type is the classic perfectionist. And I think this is the closest type that we all hold already in our mind of what it means to be a perfectionist. So Because perfectionism is a power and can be both constructive and destructive, all these types have a lot of pros, a lot of advantages, and a lot of cons, a lot of liabilities. The pros of being a classic perfectionist are that these people are so structured. They're naturally reliable. They do what they say they're going to do the way they said they would do it in, in the timeline that they said they would do it. Um, the cons are that this type of perfectionist can sometimes come off as haughty or distanced in some way because a classic perfectionist's mindset is often, if, if you want something done well, you have to do it yourself. And this type of, of perfectionist interpersonally doesn't necessarily engender a spirit of collaboration or you know these kinds of ways that build connection. So... Classic perfectionists can come off as transactional in a way, like someone you don't really feel like you know them. And personally, classic perfectionists can also feel taken for granted and taken advantage of because a lot of people give classic perfectionists the job because they're like, well, and I know know she's going to do this without considering that even though, even if this person likes making an itinerary for vacation or likes, you know, organizing, that doesn't mean it's not work. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to be acknowledged and appreciated for that. So the next type is the procrastinator perfectionist. And this type of perfectionist wants the conditions to be perfect before they start something. Um, And of course that never happens. So on the pros side, this type of perfectionist, these are really thoughtful people, people who can see a scenario from a 360 degree angle and they are not impulsive, which is such an asset. And um, they take really great care in preparing. On the con side, their preparative measures can hit a point of... um, diminishing returns where they end up preparing for something in over over preparing in a way that lends itself to a type of paralysis where they never actually execute the thing that they're trying to start and it doesn't even have to be a difficult thing this can just be it's not the it's not the perfect time to go on vacation or start dating or ask for the promotion or you know do the work thing that you've been putting off 
The counterpart to the procrastinator perfectionist is the messy perfectionist. And messy perfectionists love starting. They're start happy, as I like to say. They find the beginning of any task and the, and the perfect stage of that, of, of dating someone and going on a first date and having anything be possible or beginning a book for the first and just being able to write anything and make it about anything. That's so intoxicating for the messy perfectionist. And they love that. And that what they end up doing if they're not managing this type of perfectionism is putting their hands in a thousand pots and saying yes to everything while committing to nothing. So messy perfectionists encounter the inevitably boring tedium of the middle of a process. And because that's no longer perfect, they kind of abandon ship sometimes. Um, so messy perfectionists are naturally enthusiastic. They're superstar idea generators. They can think of a million ways to do stuff. Um, but on the con side, they don't believe in the adage, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. You know, messy perfectionists are like, well, you might not be able to do everything, but I can, cause I have the heart and I have the energy and I have the vision. And they just ignore restraints that are real, like time or money or, you know, that kind of thing. Then there's the intense perfectionist. And this type of perfectionist wants the outcome to be perfect. So they, on the pro side, razor sharp focus, do not care if people like them or not. So they're not getting in this like time suck of trying to be overly polite to everyone and and palatable all the time. They're effortlessly direct and they say what they're thinking. On the con side, they can be so over-indexed on achieving the outcome and over-indexed on efficiency that it's like, great, you got the job done, but everyone is so fucking miserable around you now and nobody wants to work for you anymore or nobody wants to enjoy this family meal that you got everyone together for and whatever because the way that you went about achieving the outcome um, was hurtful to yourself or to others in some way. Um, and then there's the Parisian perfectionist and this type of perfectionism is so interesting because it plays out interpersonally. So we tend to think of perfectionism as like, I want to produce the best product and create the best thing, but Parisian perfectionists, the ideal that they're chasing is ideal connection. So this can sometimes be experienced as wanting to be perfectly liked, wanting to perfectly like others, wanting to be perfectly understood, wanting to perfectly understand someone else or God or something like that. And the pros to this type of perfectionist are so warm, naturally inclusive, like will go out of their way to engage a person standing by themselves at a party. They really understand the power of connection. On the con side, they can sometimes want connection so much that they take shortcuts to connection, right? And so they're doing a lot of people pleasing or a lot of abandoning of themselves in little or big ways such that no connection is possible and they get the opposite of what they want, which is disconnection and isolation. The it was so relieving in the book to be able to read both the strengths as well as where it might lead to kind of forms of punishment for each of these kind of five five areas. And there was a few different areas that kind of stood out for me, but definitely the procrastinating perfectionist is 
<laughs> there was a few th- things that kind of rang rang true for me. Mm-hmm. How do you see these? Um, because often we don't live and work in isolation, and so often we're we're working with others and that counterpoint. As I was reading this, I was I would say that my husband, who's also my business partner, has elements of that messy perfectionist. So it's mm-hmm. a procrastinating and a messy. You, know, you always talked about actually the two work together well at times. They do. Yeah. How do how do some of these nuances and times um, types? work in 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 the context of um you know I guess hitting up against other people or right. kind of society so seeing it within that ecosystem as well as um the individual yeah I love the I love the word ecosystem that's a great word to describe it the way that you take advantage of whatever your profile is and you know we all have I think one dominant profile but I have a quiz on my site. It's perfectionistguide.com or katherinemorganshaffler.com. And you can take your quiz. I'm like 60% Parisian, 30% messy and 10% intense, right? And again, this is all fluid and context dependent. So generally, um, we operate in certain patterns and being able to understand your strengths and weaknesses is not for the purpose of taking your weaknesses and trying to churn them into strengths. I am a big believer in taking a strengths-based approach to growth and change, which means you take the strengths you already have, the stuff you're naturally good at, the stuff that you're already getting right, and you work to maximize that. And then you take your weaknesses and say, well, these are my weaknesses and you put boundaries around them and you create a life such that you are not as vulnerable to those weaknesses and you can kind of maintain some degree of safety for yourself instead of trying to be the first human being who has no limitations or weaknesses on earth, right? And so once you know what your strengths are, lead with those strengths and ask for help. And we don't ask for help because we think that help means that we can't do it by ourselves or we're not strong enough or there's something wrong with us um, or that we're going to be a burden to other people. There are lots of reasons why we don't ask for help. And I offer a lot of reframes, new ways to think about doing things. And one way that we currently think about asking for help is all the stuff I just said. Oh, I would ask for help, but oh, I know they're so busy already. I don't want to bother them. I would ask for help, but you know what? I can figure this out. I'm mm. going to do this by myself because I'm strong and independent or whatever, whatever your anthem is. Um, here's another way to think about asking for help. Asking for help is a refusal to give up. So if you're really determined, if you really want to get something done, if you really want to be your best self, if you really want to show up for others around you um, with full presence and in, a, in the healthiest space you can, and you're determined to do that, you're going to ask for help. And there are six different types of help I point out in the book. Um, and understanding that we all need help and that help doesn't just come in the form of emotional help. It's just one type that help of like the help of a therapist or saying something very vulnerable, 
Um, there's also like financial help, community help, informational help, where you just need someone to tell you how to file a license for your business. You know, like sometimes when we realize that we need help, it can feel immediately overwhelming. And having the language of different types of help helps you to dismantle that tidal wave around you of like, I need help and just say, oh, I need information or I need $200 or I need to vent to a friend for a moment. And so, you know, being able to work within an ecosystem of other people with their own strengths and weaknesses looks like perhaps you saying to your husband who has no difficulty if he's a messy perfectionist, I imagine beginning something like, let's say you guys are putting your house on the market. Hey, I need you. Oh, he's done it within five minutes. Like it's it's on. (laughs) It's easy, right? And so just like ask someone who loves the beginning of something for help with the beginning. Hey, I'm, I'm, if you're a procrastinator perfectionist and you want to start dating again, for example, the last thing that you will do is create a dating profile. There's a thousand other things you can think of that you want to do before Mm. that. So get around a messy perfectionist and say, Hey, can you create a dating profile for me? Cause I need to rip the bandaid off. I can't do it myself. I need your help. It's not that big of a deal. Right. And if you're a procrastinator perfectionist, um, or I'm sorry, a messy perfectionist, you're going to need help in the middle. You're going to need somebody to help you with accountability or to say, listen, I'm say to a procrastinating perfectionist or an intense perfectionist or classic perfectionist for that matter. Look, I'm losing steam. Can you help me do this part? Can you find out this information I need? Can you go with me to, you know, the where whatever it is you're trying to do and file this thing with me? I don't know what people's particular circumstance is, but I know that there are stages of a process that are easier and more difficult for each of us. And just just directly asking for help from people who don't find it difficult and it's actually not a burden for them and it actually mm. builds connection and helps them know, oh, you're human. And then helps them feel more licensed to ask you for help later when they'll inevitably need help. Like it's okay to ask for help. It's not only okay. It's a beautiful thing to do. Can be a gift for the other person. As you say, it kind of really builds connection, a powerful thing to kind of get us out of our own head. uh, Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we can start to see a pathway forward. Um, and there was also something you said in that answer around, you know, what's the anthem that I'm listening to that <laughs> that mm-hmm. might be the thing that's kind of playing in my head, which is, uh, you know, just a, such a great reminder to listen to that anthem. Is it serving you? Is it not serving you? How can I get out of my own way? And how do we move from, as we said right at the start, from control to power? One of the things you also talk about is joy. And we talked earlier about that joy is a birthright. There's nothing you can do to deserve that. Um, There was a lovely quote that I've pulled out of the book that says, joy holds tremendous power. It's impossible to live joyfully without joy benefiting the world, Mm -hmm. which I think is just gorgeous and and a beautiful way for us to kind of come back to a sense of power. What's your relationship like with joy? 
I have a great relationship with joy now. Um, and I lead a joyful life every day. And that doesn't mean that I'm happy every day. It means that I find moments in my day in which to go back to our birds in a V. I don't need them to be any other way. And I can appreciate them for what they are and feel flooded really with a sense of gratitude and excitement and curiosity and just being alive. To me, being joyful is about, this sounds strange to say, but it's about actually allowing yourself to feel alive and to acknowledge like, holy shit, I am an, I'm an alive person in the world. Um, I have always had such an acute sense of our delicacy as human beings. Like we're so delicate and fragile and it is a miracle, I think, to be alive in the world. And it's also the, one of the easiest things to forget and take for granted. And um, anytime I've ever been stopped unexpectedly by someone who's a lot older than me, like in an elevator, I'll sometimes be, you know, playing and messing around with my daughter and or in a grocery store line or something like that. They always like reach out to me in this warm but urgent way and say something to the effect of just enjoy it. It goes by so mm. fast. Um, just just enjoy it. And I am always initially slightly creeped out, for lack of a better way to explain it, <laughs> by the urgency of their message. But it's almost mm. like they know something that other people don't know, which is that they are 93, but they bl they blinked. And like yesterday they were 22, you know? And I just feel like it does all really go by in a blink. And the fact that I have a lot of problems in my life that I don't know what to, how to deal with them is less important to me than the fact that I have built relationships in my life with people who can sit with me in the pain of my problems and who can make me laugh and who can see me for who I am and not just what I do or don't do or my accomplishments or inadequacies. And I'm alive. I'm like, that feels joyful. Mm. That's exciting to me, you know? Yeah. Listen, listen to that urgency. Um, Catherine, your, this invitation to talk about power in the way that we look at perfectionism, to change our language, uh, to come back to ourselves, to ask for what we want and to ask for help is just so important. Um, so thank you for putting it out there. My final question to you, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? To me, to live a standout life means to be your full self. You know, like an, like something I wrote down for a long time when I was less sure of who I was and how to be and express who I was in the world is it's okay for, for you to risk being yourself. I think it sometimes feels like a real risk to say mm. the thing you're really thinking or do the thing you most want to do. It's scary. And standing out is not about figuring out how to eradicate that fear or, or even diminish it. It's just about being who you are amidst the fear and amidst all the other stuff you also feel, which is like excited, 
You know, all the things I've been talking about, curious, determined, connected, passionate, all that stuff. Worth the risk. Thank you so much for your time, Catherine. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. Life.